Good evening, fellow book lovers, fellow political junkies, and welcome to the Penn Writers Forum, sponsored by the Authors League Foundation, by Penn American Center, and by the Association of American uh, Publishers, which is working aggressively through an amicus brief to bring attention to the sorts of issues that are being addressed tonight. I'm Joel Canero, president of Penn, and Penn, as you know, is an organization that exists, among other things, to ensure that citizens all around the world are free to do research, to publish, and to read what they like. Ah, read. If I'm looking a little bloodshot, and those in the front row can see it, it's because I've spent the last three days with a new biography, be in the bookstore any day now, and it's called The Years of Lyndon Johnson, Master of the Senate. And I've retitled the book in my own mind to call it The Years of Robert Caro, Master of the Senator. <laughs> I picked it up, and as they say in Dublin, I couldn't leave it down. And you won't be able to either. But lest I seem to be showing favoritism to an old friend, let me say I also read with enormous pleasure the other distinguished members of this evening's panel. I happen to be an addictive reader who cares passionately about the things Penn does and about the freedom of expression. <clears throat> In fact, Penn is one of three institutions about which I feel most passionately. The others are the Guggenheim Foundation, where I have worked for 17 years, and the New York Mets, um, who <laughs> I have cheered them along with mixed results for something like 40 years. My heroes tend to be people um, like Grace Paley, Arthur Miller, Arthur Schlesinger, and Mike Piazza. Well, let me uh, acknowledge a few local heroes uh, who have made it possible for this program to take place tonight. Uh, Ron Chernow, who is our vice president, has been absolutely uh, instrumental in the forum series, and particular, in particular this program tonight, so I salute him. I salute my Penn colleagues, um, Sean, uh, <coughs> Sean Rocha and Andrea Jayaviran, and my good friend, the executive director, uh, Mike Roberts, and they join me in expressing our thanks to the panelists and also to the Kaplan Foundation, the New York State Council on the Arts, and FJC. And um, I want to offer particular thanks to someone who has been a regular participant in the series, and that's uh, Leonard Lopate. He's one of the fabulous Lopate brothers. Um, his, his brother Philip is the writer, and Leonard, of course, is the man with the golden voice and the thousand questions who needs no introduction to any of you who has a radio or who rides in a New York taxi cab where you can always hear what used to be called uh, New York and Company, now it's called uh, Leonard Lopate. Um, what I discovered about Leonard is that unlike some politicians, he's incapable of telling a lie. I reminded him that some years ago he had interviewed me and a beautiful actress uh, about Gatto, the writer's colony, and he confessed that he didn't remember me at all, but he remembered her completely. <laughs> well, that's the kind of honesty, isn't it, that we need in our political figures. Well, and so I have the great pleasure on behalf of the three sponsoring organizations, all of which believe passionately in freedom, 
freedom of expression. Uh, in welcoming you, I want to thank you for being here. And now I will step aside so that Leonard Lopate and tonight's trio, tonight's extraordinary trio of literary masters can take the stage. Thank you and welcome. <laughs> Normally, I would start off with long introductory remarks, setting. OK. If, my, if this doesn't do damage to my back, uh, normally I would start off with long introductory remarks, but I'm not going to. Tonight, we have these three remarkable men here, and I just thought I'd bring them out and get going as quickly as possible. Richard Reeves, former chief political correspondent for the New York Times. His twice-weekly syndicated column has appeared in 100 newspapers, or over 100 newspapers, since 1979. He's also made several award-winning documentary films, but it is his nine books, especially his biographies of presidents, that brings him here to tonight. President Kennedy, profile of power, won several national awards, was named Best Nonfiction Book of the Year by Time Magazine in 1993. Last fall, he gave us President Nixon alone in the White House. Richard Reeves. Robert Caro spends many years researching his books, Seven for the Power Broker, which was published in 1974, obviously time well spent. That book won a Pulitzer and was recently chosen one of the 100 greatest books of the century by the Modern Library. He spent even more years working on his monumental The Years of Lyndon Johnson biography, but that has not gone unappreciated either. Both of the first two volumes received National Book Critics Circle Awards in 1982 and 1990, and now, a dozen years later, the third, this slim volume, has just been published by Knopf. Robert Caro. It's always instructive when an academic becomes an eyewitness to history. When Arthur Schlesinger Jr. served as a personal assistant to President John F. Kennedy, he was able to witness firsthand the politics and personalities he would write about in his books about the Kennedys. He's published two dozen books by my account, earning him his share of prizes as well, including two National Book Awards, the Bancroft Prize, Francis Parkland Prize for History, and two Pulitzers in history in 1946 at the age of Jackson, and in 1966 for his Kennedy biography, A Thousand Days, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. your microphones. Did you see them on the backs of your seats? This is technical stuff. Uh, Richard, do you think of yourself primarily as a syndicated columnist? How do the various hats you wear affect the way you approach a presidential biography? No, I think I think of myself as a book writer. 
and uh, recently a book writer on presidencies. And as you know, I'm now doing one on President Reagan. At the, at the Reagan Library every day? I spend a lot of time at the Reagan Library. Great view. Do you think that Papers it's- Papers aren't all there, but great view. <laughs> <laughs> at least he doesn't have daughters fighting over whether you can gain access or not. No, he has a one-man female gang. Is it? <laughs> one woman female. Do you think that your approach is different because of your background than it might have been if you had come out of a university experience? Yes. Uh, my, uh, the way I have tried to do the books, at least the books on Kennedy and Nixon, have had to do very much uh, with chronology, which I can uh, think of as a journalist art, that many, uh, many biographies are broken up either by a single theme, often Freudian, or are carried, uh, or are broken up by issues, civil rights, Vietnam, whatever. And my own experience in the White House as a reporter, never a staffer, has been that all of these things happen at the same time. So that if history, as they say, is lived forward but written backward, I've tried to create a style of writing history forward by dealing only with what the president knew uh, at that at a particular time, what was on his desk that day, who he saw that day. Uh, John Kennedy, after all, did not know he was going to be assassinated, and Richard Nixon did not know that he was going to leave in disgrace. And I thought that gave uh, a much more valid picture of what it was like to be president, which is what I was after. What what is it like to be president? Robert, uh, you began as a reporter also at Newsday, and you began writing books because you felt constrained when you wanted to write something on Robert Moses? Was sure. the newspaper too small for you? <laughs> you'd sit there and you'd type City Park Commissioner Robert Moses, and you'd say to yourself, what does that have to do with the fact that he's building the Long Island Expressway? Or you'd type Tribro Bridge Authority Chairman Robert Moses, and you'd say, what does that have to do with the fact that he's building these huge dams up on the Niagara River? And you say, what is a public authority? And who is this guy who's never been elected to anything, but he's been in power for 43 years? And you knew, or I felt, that I could never find that out, because I didn't know where he got his power in the scope of the daily newspaper. Do you, like Richard, uh, think of yourself as a reporter who's now writing history? Yes, I see my life as sort of a straight line. In fact, when I'm in the Johnson Library, I still remember things that my editor said to me, like, turn every page. <laughs> now, Arthur, you never worked as a reporter, as far as I can tell. Um, how did your transition from teaching at Harvard to involvement in the political process take place? Well, I was always somewhat involved in the political process. Growing up, as I did in the 1930s, uh, the New Deal represented that kind of, uh, of alliance between uh, intellectuals and politicians that uh, detracted, therefore, people in, uh, in academia to, uh, to politics. FDR's Brain Trust was composed mostly of Columbia professors like Rex Tugwell and Adolf Burley and Ray Moley. Uh, also, he had a high degree of participation from the Harvard Law School, Felix Frankfurter, Paul Freund, and so on. And so there was a, it was, uh, there wasn't a strong separation uh, between being a scholar 
and being a, a political activist. I got into politics mostly, I guess, through Adlai Stevenson, who was a Democratic candidate in 52 and 56. And he was a, I, got, I came to know him when he was governor of Illinois, and he too represented that kind of union between uh, intellectual life and political activism, which is, uh, and therefore he surrounded himself with, people, with many of the same people whom JFK later surrounded himself. Were you aware when you were doing, when you were working in the political arena that someday you'd write about these things? I was not, uh, yes, I suppose in some sense, I, as a writer, I wrote, wrote, wrote about a lot of things and uh, wrote about politics. Whether you mean as a historian? Uh, For example, as a special assistant to the president and an important member of the Kennedy circle, a friend as well, did that present something of a conflict for you when you decided to write it as history? Uh, well, I, I, it's both an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, your intimacy with somebody means that you know things, you know what is, uh, you have a sense of his personality, you work closely with him. On the other hand, uh, this may lead to uh, a friendly attachment or a hostile view, but uh, you know, perfect objectivity, perfect is, is unattainable. And so long as it's it evident the way you approach uh, a, a politician or a party or an issue, uh, then there'll be plenty, you can always count on a lot of other people who approach it differently. And as the great Dutch historian Peter Heil once said, history is an argument without ends. And that's the fun of the history and the fascination of the history. But when you're, when you're approaching a, a subject like you, Richard, uh, you've written about people you've admired and people you haven't admired. I'm assuming now that you're writing about Reagan, knowing what I've read from you in the past, that you're assuming certain negative things. Uh, I don't assume uh, certain negative things. I, I think certain negative things. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because his politics are quite different than my own. Uh, on the other hand, I, uh, I approach this book, and the question in my mind is, uh, this man, I, I was speaking to Don Regan the other day, who had been a Secretary of Treasury and uh, then Chief of Staff, and I said, what was the thing you thought might be most different about the Reagan White House? And he said, that is, everyone in it thought they were smarter than the president. <laughs> uh, one can only that, imagine what's going to happen right, with that. That turned one. out not to be true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that I did see uh, the story of Ronald Reagan as it is in my head now, and I'm just in the very early stages of it, is that this man, whether we like it or not, whether I like it or not, uh, change the world, and nobody can figure out how the hell he did it. And <laughs> I'm going to try to find out how he did it. Robert, you started the LBJ biography uh, a thousand years ago, so was, was your attitude about him the same then? Has it remained consistent? No, it's changed quite a bit. I actually started uh, the book, I suppose, thinking that I was going to 
I saw a great resemblance between him and Al Smith, who, while I was doing The Power Broker, I learned about Al Smith, who no one really knew about, who I thought was one of the extraordinary political figures of our century, totally unappreciated. Francis Perkins once said, you know, that 95% of everything we did in the New Deal, Al Smith started in New York. So what I saw about Al Smith, who I always wanted to write about, but you know, you don't have enough time to write all the books you want in your life, was he was very unbelievably poor, very badly educated, only got through the sixth grade in school, and was a ruthless politician. But underneath it all, uh, his great driving desire was to help what he called us. He says it's we against them. The votes are down here. They're not up on the east side. They're down in the fourth ward. So he wanted to help his people. So when I first looked at Lyndon Johnson, I saw these similarities, very poorly educated very poor, ruthless politician. But when he got into power, as Al Smith did, he started to do things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Of course, as time went on, my view changed. You know, it was altered. And actually, that view has not been altered that much. And in this book, we see he finally gets power. You know, Lord Acton, we all know Lord Acton's uh, all power corrupt, absolute power corrupt, absolutely. I'm, absolutely, I'm actually not sure that's correct for reasons that, I, that take me a long time to go into in the book. But what I do think is true, what power always does is reveal, when you get it, both the good and the bad sides of you and everything in between becomes clearer because now you can do what you want. Uh, now we see, as Johnson is rising to power in the Senate, the same ruthlessness. You know, he gets to the Senate and in six years he's majority leader. But when he attains that power, he sets out immediately to pass the first Civil Rights Act since Reconstruction. It's an astonishing thing to watch him do it here. At that time, 14 great standing committees in the Senate. Southerners are chairman of nine of them. They have virtually all the power in the Senate. To watch Johnson with his fierce determination, a savage determination, I'm going to get it through. To watch him do that day by day is sort of incredible. So he and Smith are at the end winding up at the end of this book. There's another book. It's sort of the same place. If the, if the subject of a presidential biography is someone who lived during our lifetime, that has to lead to a very different approach, doesn't it? For example, the, uh, Arthur, when you were writing about Andrew Jackson, all you had was I mean, documents. You couldn't uh, speak to people who knew him. But when you can speak to people who knew the, your subject, and when your audience has its own sense of that person, that really must have a, a <coughs> must, must put an awful lot of pressure on you or change the way you approach a biography, doesn't it? Well, I don't think so. I think people like Jackson, for example, arouse conflicting emotions even, even 150 years later. And uh, the Jefferson dispute, Jefferson Hamilton, I mean, there is a substantial difference between knowing the personalities uh, as, as contemporaries and knowing them only from, from the documents. But the, uh, the fluctuation of judgment, I mean, Jefferson versus Hamilton. Uh, Jim Simon is here tonight. Hamilton versus, I mean, Jefferson versus John Marshall, and so on. All these things are, are uh, acutely controversial and uh, one brings to 
an assessment of the past, the same preoccupations that you bring to assessment of the present. Prison, uh, historians, like anyone else, are prisoners of their own experience. And they are, they tend to read back into the past the priorities of, of, uh, that they see in, in the present. But we, we learned about the, some of the people you've all written about through the newspapers. That's a different kind of a history, isn't it? Held to a different standard? Well, you, there were newspapers back in Jefferson's day and Jackson's day, and they were far more unbridled, and far more polemical, far more irresponsible than, than, than they, they are today. Was there ever a time when it was relatively easy for scholars and biographers to gain access to all of the documents of the presidency? I would th say that uh, until FDR, uh, the pre the, uh, any retiring president took all his papers away with him. And in many cases, they, uh, the relatives, uh, after they died, the estate was put up for auction. And uh, it, it was only F FDR who established the system of presidential libraries and who believed that the president's public papers, at least, were part of the belong to the American people and not to the president's family. So it made it harder in some ways, uh, unless the documents had been sold at auction, to, to gain access to tell the complete story. Or I'm not even sure whether documents are the only way you tell it. Well, documents are invaluable. But uh, the, the interpretation of documents is essential, and that brings in the, the, the question of priorities. I mean, American history has been revolutionized by two efforts. One, the women's rights movement, and the other, the civil rights movement. So now, dealing with the past, we have to do, deal with questions of gender and of race in, in a much more emphatic way than, than was customary in my generation or before that. Well, when you were writing The Age of Jackson, was there anything new to discover? Was everything already available and just open to interpretation, or were there still documents to be uncovered? Yeah, I don't think uh, there were any smoking guns. But it was a general view when I wrote The Age of Jackson, that Jackson was an eruption, of, represented an eruption of the wild frontiersmen on, uh, in, uh, let loose suddenly in, in politics. And there was a, front, a frontier interpretation of, of Jackson. Well, Jackson came from Tennessee, which is in a frontier state, but Henry Clay, his great opponent, came from Kentucky, which is also a frontier state. And I, the, the, the interesting thing I discovered was that the incipient embryonic trade unions of the day, and most of the intellectuals, uh, for example, the New York Evening Post, which is edited by William Cullen Bryant, and which is very different from the... <laughs> <laughs> Rupert Murdoch's scurvy New York Post. But pe people like Bryant and George Bancroft and Washington Irving and Nathaniel Hawthorne, Walt Whitman, they were all for, for, they weren't people from the frontier, they were all for Jackson. So I felt that really you, uh, that uh, there was a possibility of uh, understanding Jacksonian democracy rather in terms of class conflict than of, than of sectional conflict. Bob Caro of LBJ left lots of documents. He also was one of the, the presidents who taped a lot of stuff. So was that important to you in putting together these books, the documents? Yeah, they're really important. And uh, the developments that are occurring now 
really have a significance in relation to that because you know one of the things that's not mentioned in what uh, President Bush is trying to do is that if you want to challenge his executive order, the requestor, as, it, as he's called, the historian, has to ask for specific, detailed things. Now, that's really contrary to the entire way that I think you should work in presidential papers. In the Johnson letter, which is really the one I know, of course, best, the last time they put out a press release, they said they had 34 million pieces of paper. And <laughs> for all I know, that's true. But whatever the number is, you really can't know what's in there. And if you're only looking for specific, I can give you a, one example of that if you want. For those who have read the first volume, you know that Johnson's career changed in a single month, October 1940. Up to that point, he was a freshman congressman, a young congressman, with no power. And you can see in the Johnson Library these memos when he writes a more powerful congressman like John McCormick, it's just, you know, it's a cursory pro forma reply. And all of a sudden, in November 1940, John McCormick is asking him for 20 minutes of his time. So I asked Tommy Corcoran, who of course is a friend of Arthur's, was a friend of Arthur's, one of Roosevelt's advisors and an intimate of Johnson in that early period, what happened in October 1940 to give Johnson this sudden national uh, power? And Corcoran said to me, I won't forget it, money kid. He used to call me a kid, money kid, money. But you're never going to be able to write about it, kid. He said, and I said, why not? He said, because you're never going to find anything in writing. And for several years, I think two or three years, I thought that was true because I wasn't finding anything and I didn't have any place to look for it. And one day, well, but I was, uh, I was following the thing. You could do this with Johnson's house papers. You can't do it with the presidential papers. There are too many. It was possible to turn every page. I just said, I want to look at every box and every page in it. And in a place that you wouldn't expect it, suddenly there was a telegram from George Brown of, George, of Brown and Root, out of nowhere, mixed in with other papers. Lyndon, the checks are on the way. Smoking <laughs> 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 gun. Now, on that paper was written a cross-reference to another file. It was actually written in John Connolly's handwriting. So I asked for that other file, and of course, those of you who have read the book know that what that other file was, what Johnson did in 19, October 1940, he realized, because he was a political genius, that he possessed something that no one else did. He had access to two very different groups of people. He had access to the Texas oil men who wanted political influence in Washington and didn't have it at that time, and he had access to the liberal congressmen who needed money for campaign contributions. And he was the only conduit. So he rented an office in the Muncie building to avoid the federal law against taking contributions on federal property. And he had these checks and cash come into him. And you found in this cross-referenced file, which if you had just been looking for an index, you never would have found, there is Lyndon Johnson's list, typed, the name of the congressman, Scoop Jackson. The next column says how much he asked for. The money, the amounts were very small then, $1,000 or $1,500. On the right, what he needed for, campaign workers, poll watchers. And on the left is Lyndon Johnson's handwriting, okay, 1,000, or no, <laughs> or no out, which John Connolly explained that he's never getting any money for it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the rawest use of political power. Sorry I took so long, but that's what's wrong with Bush's order. Well, you've, you've brought up uh, president's, the President's Executive Order 13233, and I want to get to that in a moment. But, uh, Richard Reeves, uh, you said in your recent book, President Nixon Alone in the White House, that 
Nixon produced more paper and tape than any president before and since. So that was a lot of page turning, wasn't it? Well, the record now uh, is changed. It was 44 million pages uh, that produced by the Nixon White House, and that doesn't count what they destroyed. Uh, with Reagan, uh, with Reagan, it's 55 uh, million uh, pages. So that the great historian, uh, or the great historical tool, certainly of, of the 20th century, with the possible exception of the Schlesinger family, is the Xerox machine. Uh, there is no one copy of anything, and so that the job of people like us becomes, you can't see 50, you can't turn 55 million pages. You have to uh, uh, know what you're looking for. So the advantage of doing it with people who are still alive is that you can triangulate with interviews, with journalism, uh, to, and with other papers to find out that something must have existed. And one of the, uh, one of the thrills of, of our little chases is that there is always a time you go to interview someone and they say, uh, well, yeah, I, I know about that. I said, well, are there any papers? He said, well, actually, you know, I meant to put them in the archives. They're in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to look at them? Uh, so that an awful lot of it comes about that way. I'd like to underscore, too, the point about the Freedom of Information Act and its limitations. That is, if you don't know what you're looking for, it's almost worthless. If you don't know what you're looking for, going to presidential library is, is almost worthless. And one of the things that uh, I'm going through right now is that uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, at a certain point in his presidency, some of his people figured out that he really would not read, I'm not saying he was not a great reader because he did read a good deal, uh, but he would not read particularly briefing papers of a page or two. Uh, so that the National Security Council began to make documentaries on the subject uh, that uh, Reagan was interested in so that there exists somewhere, I've not found it yet, a history of Russia done by the CIA is a documentary, a, a biography of uh, a biography of Gorbachev before he met him, also of Chernenko and Andropov, uh, uh, because that was the way Ronald Reagan absorbed information, and often he absorbed it very, very well. Unfortunately, very few people knew that this was how it was being done, and I'm having trouble get, finding out what agency and place and date to go to uh, for these videos in the Freedom of Information Act, which never anticipated that the papers might not be papers. But even before the president issued Executive Order 13233, Attorney General John Ashcroft issued a memorandum telling federal agencies that if they decide to withhold records in response to Freedom of Information Act requests, they can be assured, those are his words, that the Department of Justice will defend their decisions. This is very different from what Janet Reno had directed. She said federal agencies should resolve ambiguous situations in favor of openness. So exactly. something has happened in, in the last year and, and months, a few months. Um, this administration really does want to pull back on access. And I, I wonder what it means for historians. Do you see any immediate threat to the things you're working on? Well, it's a tremendous threat to the things I'm working on. Uh, among other things, uh, 
uh, you've got to remember these things are not only pa uh, papers. This is America. They're commodities. They're worth a hell of a lot of money. Uh, and Richard Nixon had tried to, to sell his. But the fact of the matter is that we also make our living by having access to it, too, so that there, uh, there's money involved uh, in that part of it. But the fight does not begin with John Ashcroft, the teeny little man, I think. Uh, the, the fourth complaint against King George uh, in the Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson, uh, this was the fourth complaint about why we should separate from England. Speaking of King George, Jefferson writes in the Declaration, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. Well, the sole purpose today is often fatiguing us <laughs> into, uh, into giving up uh, the chase for records. And I also think that the reasons uh, this is happening right now are more complicated. I, first place, the Republicans have great continuity in public office. They understand the executive branch of the government much better than Democrats. Many Democrats think that government is about making speeches and making laws. Republicans tend to understand that government is about setting the processes of how things will be handled in the future. And that's what they have done with this executive order. But not only to protect daddy. Yes, I'm sure that George Bush hopes he can protect his father in this. But he also, or at least people around him, are aware that, global, as we have all become aware, globalization cuts many ways. Uh, it not only affects uh, the automobile business, it also affects terrorism. Terrorism has globalized. And law is globalizing. And the President of the United States does not want to see himself sitting in Amsterdam or in The Hague 25 years from now with a lawyer from someplace saying, well, why is it, uh, Mr. President, that in this paper about the leadership of the PLO, you said this and that and this? And partly because of that, there's a great determination in the White House to prevent those records from ever becoming public because, as any of us who have done this know, often papers are classified in the government itself. Uh, however, in recent presidencies, we've had legal proceedings, both criminal and civil, so that much of what has been declassified, you can cross Iran-Contra being an example, Watergate being an example. You can cross the street, and if the document was subpoenaed in the federal courthouse, you can walk in and see the document which the CIA and the Secretary of State and the State Department have said will never be open uh, to the public, so that the world is much more complicated, and there's an aggressive bunch running the country right now who would, are going to try to make the law through those processes more difficult for that information to ever become public. But actually, it, this, the most recent law on this was 1978, the Presidential Records Act, and that made all presidential papers available 12 years after the president left office. So now this is going to change. It, you know, it, did, it didn't make all, all not unclassified papers. Yeah, well, and the, 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 the things There's where the there were national secret security negotiations and, would probably yeah. be excluded. And personal privacy. And personal privacy. Don't, 
underrate the uh, power of a president of the United States and his people to prevent papers from ever even getting onto the track where things like freedom of information uh, are involved. That's one of the reasons you interview people and go into garages, because that paper, uh, much of it is never going to appear. And for the oddest of reasons, I may be wrong, and Arthur, I, I think, will know, is that my recollection is that the bombing surveys of World War II are still classified uh, for national security. I don't know about uh, that. Uh, the, the idea being that the reports are. Yeah. I mean, the reports are, pub, pub, are public. The United States Strategic Bombing Survey report on bombing in Germany and on Japan. Whether the actual files on which the reports were based are still classified, I don't know. The, the, British, British, have the, official the British have the Official Secrets Act, right. which allows for declassification after 50 years. Do you think that's a good idea? At least 50 years is a hell of a long time. We need the information. There was a great example, uh, and not as only as writers do we need the information, as citizens uh, we need the information. There was a great example that slipped out, and it's the kind of thing probably the British would like to keep for 50 years. That is, with the death of Savimbi, the fact that we were told when American troops were sent uh, uh, into Angola, uh, there were Cuban troops. Uh, there, and we were there to counterbalance them. When the papers were released uh, related to Savimbi's death, uh, it turned out that the Cubans came three weeks after we did, and in fact the truth that we were told at the time, or what we were told at the time, the truth was the exact opposite. We came there first and then the Cubans uh, arrived. And you need that kind of information to judge uh, a government, a democracy, and each of our role in it. Well, the issue here, isn't it, is the balance between the right to privacy and the public's right to know in a democracy. And is that possible to do? Many feel that, uh, that the privilege of a president follows him into retirement and is a personal right to be exercised by Well, I think it's, and it's different than these people often want papers and tapes because they tend to they want to follow the example of Winston Churchill, who once said, I want to make the history and then write it myself before uh, anyone else can. And that's we, why Richard Nixon taped right. everything he right. thought he was going to be doing. And we now work under a system, let's face it, uh, where public service, where there are relatively low salaries, in fact works on a system of deferred compensation. So that last year we're told uh, that uh, President Clinton made almost, made $15 million or more, which is almost as much as George Stephanopoulos made. Uh, <laughs> but, I go back to the point, those papers are worth money. Uh, we tend to give them out pretty free, even though they overprice our books a bit. Uh, but uh, they char uh, uh, the people who get their hands on them first uh, and often flip them out of the White House uh, can make much bigger fortunes on them. Well, uh, there is a serious problem, I think, of personal privacy. For example, the personnel files particularly for the appointment of federal judges, you may still be on, on the bench, uh, will contain a lot of letters, pro and, and con. And some of the con letters may be uh, filled with inaccurate information and so on. I, uh, it, the Lincoln administration, for example, no one gives a damn what people thought about the judges that Lincoln appointed, but they are long since dead. 
So I think part of the time, uh, part of the problem is the passage of time. I'm sure Billy Graham wishes that there was a bit more <laughs> control over some of these right. secrets. Oh boy. If I can add to that, these are, this happens to be the index of the famous 60,000 papers which were supposed to be opened on January 1st and which were not, were, were brought back from California, from Simi Valley to Washington uh, to be reclassified. This is the list of the documents which are still not classified, uh, not declassified uh, under President Reagan. Uh, uh, most of these are, as Arthur said, uh, papers on the qualifications of judges. Good deal of it on Robert Bork, but the, uh, they are—they're being held, and they are the evaluation of candidates for judgeships during the Reagan administration. Interestingly enough, and I'll stop. Uh, they are filed not alphabetically, but by age, uh, so that they could pick judges as young as possible. But that information, which is considered personal privacy, and the, and the president has absolute power over, over that, uh, this is the stack that has not been released for that reason. So what would happen under President Bush's uh, executive order? He'd be, you'd have to request papers well, uh, he, specifically to him? He gives uh, the executive order. It makes it possible for the incumbent president to veto access to documents of a past administration where the past president or his estate is w perfectly willing to open the documents. So this could be used politically. I could see a president being very willing to release some of the most embarrassing documents from a, a predecessor in the opposition party and, and keeping a tight control over his predecessors yeah. in his party. That's it really undermines and subverts the Presidential Records Act of 1978. That is what caused uh, part of Watergate, was an attempt of, uh, by Nixon, who was, de who was determined that there was a smoking gun showing that President Kennedy had ordered the assassination of President GM of, of South Vietnam. And one of the crimes of Watergate, when they could not find records that said that, I don't believe that happened. I think he approved the coup, but I don't think uh, he ordered a murder. Uh, but e. Howard, what e. Howard, e. Howard Hunt spent his days doing was uh, snipping bits out of State Department cables to create a phony cable in which Kennedy ordered the assassination of Jim. I heard, in Arthur's presence, I have that right, yes? What? I have that right, yes, I think. Yes, you will have it right. I worked with Howard Hunt in the Marshall Plan, 1948. I didn't know that. We're both part of Harriman's staff. He seemed to, he seemed to sneak then. <laughs> <laughs> and he lived up to that first impression. But it's not just a matter of sifting through documents if you're writing history. You also got to talk to people again and again. I know uh, you, Robert, uh, you uh, talk about speaking to the same people like Lyndon Johnson's brother many times over many years until you finally find out the real story. Yes, and there's a relation to that between speaking to people in the document. That's why even the 1978 Act, which sets this 12-year uh, limit, is really uh, inimical to our whole idea, the whole concept of the public's right to know, because you can probably do it in terms of an interview, 
let's say you wanted Lyndon Johnson used to have his famous Tuesday lunches. It was, they were uh, I have a low voice, but I'll try to talk louder. How's <laughs> that? tie, Bob. <laughs> I'll speak into my tie. Uh, the relationship I'm talking about is between documents and, and interviews. Let's say you had, and I'll do it in terms of a single meeting, let's say Lyndon Johnson had his famous Tuesday lunches, at which often there were only four people, Russ, McNamara, sometimes Maxwell Taylor, sometimes Rostow and Johnson. You have minutes. If you are able to get the minutes of that meeting, then you can go to each of these four people and say, what did this sentence mean? You're, you're, the minutes say you said this. What were you talking about? Once you have those records, then you can then go back to say, McNamara says that you said this for this reason. What do you say about that? You can go back to the other person. If, you have, if you're not able to ask those questions, your understanding of what documents means is, is really imperfect. It's a lot less than it should be. So when you say, well, at the very best, we'll have to wait 12 years for this, in 12 years, a lot of people die. I, one of the problems that I've had because it's taken me so long to do this volume is that I realized that a lot of people who were in the next volume uh, were going to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes for a very tough interview. <laughs> you know, Your story about the Senator <laughs> but. So what you had to do was you had to, there's no sense interviewing someone. I'll talk about George Reedy, who was Johnson's press secretary for part of his time. There's no sense interviewing George Reedy if you can't, if you have to just ask general questions. If you say, here's a memorandum that you wrote to Lyndon Johnson, what did you mean by it? Then you can have a good interview, a much better interview, a more productive interview. If you don't have that document, that interview isn't going to be as good. If you have to wait 12 years for it, people die. Now, during the course of this book, any number of people that, I, that were getting old, George Reedy and Horace Busby are two of the most prominent. Busby was Johnson's <coughs> speechwriter for part of his time. And I would interview Busby. You know, I had all his records. I had all his memos. So before he had his first stroke, I would go to Washington, and we would have these long interviews. Then he had a stroke, and it got harder to do that, and his children took him out to uh, California. So he would call me, or I would call him. I don't know how many, if you want to call these interviews, sometimes they went on for hours, sometimes it was just five minutes. He would say, I forgot something I wanted to tell you. Finally, he had what turned out to be his last stroke, and wrote a letter, actually not to me, but to my wife, Ina, on whom I think he had a crush. And <laughs> he said, I went into the hospital uh, Friday, uh, said something like, uh, don't know if I didn't know. Now, all I could think of was, now Bob will have no one to tell him about the vice presidency. <laughs> and to me, that really uh, went to the heart of what's really wrong about this whole question of presidential access. I guess I don't quite agree with you, author, on uh, the right of privacy. I think the right of privacy of the President of the United States has to be subordinated to our right to know. He's the man that we elect. He, he has shaped all our lives. If we have to wait any length of time, any barrier to going to people and saying, being able to say, 
here is the document. What did you mean by it? I think we've really impeded historical investigation. I think it does impede historical investigation. On the other hand, the, the, the weapons that would open to unscrupulous demagogues. I mean, not good historians, but that would be very counterproductive. That's really a, well, that's really a very hard problem, and you do feel that. It's like when you get the FBI files, you know, and even after they, they sanitize them, there's so much information in there which is often disgusting and... Uh, often inaccurate. Uh, just, <laughs> I meant that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you do have this real problem of what, of what to use and how, how to do that. Yes. See, but th there's one other role of documents and the public's right to know with them. That is, it is a, uh, a kind of guard, a warning to people in public life that what they are saying and doing now may sometime become public. <coughs> so that the public's right to know is an important uh, governor, I think, on, to coin a phrase, an important governor on governance. If it's going to be on paper, you've got to assume someone's going to see it someday, and you better act your best. But, you know, even with 12 years, there could be problems. There was a recent gathering of historians and scholars to uh, assess Ronald Reagan's place in history. I, I'm sure you all read about it in the New York Times the other day. And they said they had a hard time providing any details because the Bush administration had delayed the release of Mr. Reagan's presidential papers a year after they were scheduled to be released. So uh, even with that 12-year rule, it, things can be held up. Well, I, that, the conference at Santa Barbara, yes. uh, I think that's true, but that is not uh, uh, the great, being a year behind, although I think we were right to take the stand of, uh, of standing up and saying uh, uh, that this shall not happen. Uh, in the world we're talking about, a year and 60,000 papers uh, is not a great uh, is not a great disadvantage. The things that happen that are far more significant uh, are are what's not coming out at all, being called P1 personal privacy uh, or whatnot. A number of, of papers of which I have here, which clearly aren't personal privacy. Uh, they're there to protect people who advocated certain policies, uh, and they would prefer not to have those out at that time. And I mean, I know that conference quite well, obviously, uh, but the fact of the matter is that the people who were there uh, are not at the Reagan Library looking for documents. Uh, I'm sure Bob, I'm sure we've all been in this situation. I have been to the Reagan Library day after day where I was the only person there. Well, and when I was at the Johnson Library, I was the only person there except for uh, the disembodiment of Mrs. Carroll where all the phone calls would come in one after another. I was writing on Kennedy at the time. But when you cover a president, many of the people, if the same party stays in power, move on and their papers end up someplace else, at, in another president's library or in a university library. The Johnson Library, which I think is the best appointed of them all, the most comfortable place to be, uh, the phone would ring about every minute and 30 seconds and it was always the same conversation. Yes, Ina. Of course, Ina. We'll look, Ina. 
<laughs> not all that comfortable. In huh? Not all that comfortable well, for everyone. Well, the, the, the carols may have been a little uncomfortable about it. I was greatly amused. <laughs> I want to talk about other things other than documents, but I'm curious, does Congress have any say in this presidential order? Can well, it be reversed? Well, the law says that the order is intending to impede. It's the Presidential Records Act that by the executive branch determining this is how it shall be processed, this is what you can do it in. It is an attempt by the executive branch uh, to overrule the legislative branch. Uh, that's an old fight in the Republic, but that's what this is about. All of you have written about people who have been written about by lots of other people. In fact, because your book is taking so many years, Bob, uh, there have been any number of books that have come out on LBJ along the way. Does that bother you? Do you have to take them into account and adjust things? Well, of course you have to take them into account and, and you read them, you know. Uh, does it bother me? No. I remember when uh, I was suggesting doing the Johnson biography, my publisher took the trouble to look up how many Johnson biographies were then either, un either already published or about to be published, and there were 17, you know. Luckily, well, I didn't care, and luckily for me, he didn't care. Uh, and I, no, I don't think it matters, of course. You know, there, uh, 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 you have to think if you're a historian in terms of long periods of time, in 200 years, there's not going to be just 17 or 30 Lyndon Johnson biographies. There's going to be 100 or 200. Well, when your uh, Nixon book came out, Richard, uh, there were any number of other ones. John Dean had a book uh -huh. out at the same time. Uh, there was a book by a historian who, who took a, an opposite position, uh, that Richard Nixon was the last liberal president, strong on affirmative action, strong on uh, all sorts of other civil rights issues, uh -huh. even, if his, even if his official policies sounded quite different. He was totally wrong about that, but... <laughs> I, it's a, it's a big pain, and I have, uh, my wife, uh, who's here also, said she didn't know how I survived one uh, particular piece of business. I wrote about, and there must be hundreds of Kennedy biographies, but there were the two great towers, Arthur's book and Ted Sorensen's book, and almost everything else in between was crap. So that I thought that uh, basically that there was a 25-year period in which it either Kennedy work was so specialized on a single issue or incident, or it had to do uh, with his private life, that I had a rather clear uh, shot, and uh, in terms of reading other people's book, uh, Arthur's book, Ted's book, uh, were like uh, the books of the Bible, if you, if you go through. Now, you, you may be able to expand on them, interpret them differently and whatnot. I was quite comfortable in that a year before my pub date, a professor at the University of uh, Wisconsin published a book on Kennedy called A Question of Character, which got quite a bit uh, of attention. Uh, and his name was Thomas C. Reeves. Uh, and my wife at that point asked me, how do you get up in the morning? <laughs> uh, we, we, we're picking big subjects for big reasons. And it's unreasonable not to expect that other people are doing the same thing. And in the end, you really get yourself, I don't know if Bob would describe it this way, but you get yourself uh, into a tank or a tunnel or a groove or a frame where you, you're coming to know the man and his people 
and the administration, and it's pretty hard to deflect you by one or two incidents in, a, in another book. What about the way you've changed? Arthur, uh, would you, you would probably not write The Age of Jackson the same way today as you did back in 1945. Uh, what about the Kennedy books with so much other material that's come out since? The uh, Jackson book is written under the shadow of the New Deal. And it was an effort to show that uh, everyone was, I mean, many conservatives were attacking FDR on the ground that he was importing subversive European ideas. And I wanted to show that FDR was really uh, reproducing a, a funded native radical tradition. And FDR himself recognized that. And uh, that's why the Jackson Day dinners are the great, or at least used to be, the great f festivals of the Democratic Party. Uh, FDR sent a letter to Colonel House in 1933 uh, saying that the issues were the same as the Jackson administration, that the fight against the bankers was a high priority and so on. Uh, but uh, today, it would be very difficult to write about the Jackson administration without going into the slavery issue, the treatment of Indians, the role of women, and so, and so on. I mean, that's why Croce, the Italian philosopher, said all history is contemporary history. In the sense that the preoccupations of the present, you tend to read back into the past. On the, Robert, on the Kennedys, I wrote a, a biography of Robert Kennedy in which I revisited uh, some of the issues on the basis of new documentation, new insights, uh, learning, you know, new material had, had come out and so on. But uh, all history, as, as Oscar Wilde once said, the one duty we owe to history is to re rewrite it. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that you said, Bob, before that you think that everything should be available. Many Americans were upset about the amount of detail that we had Bill Clinton's sex life, um, and we were treated to that throughout his presidency. I'm sure that all the books about him will go into even greater detail. <laughs> um, people accuse Richard Nixon of almost everything but sexual impropriety, but every other... <laughs> But you, you who have stayed away, for example, from um, Lyndon Johnson's mistresses in this new book, you talk about two, including Helen Gehagen Douglas. Uh, was it absolutely necessary to talk about that affair, or have you changed as a result of changing attitudes in America? No, I haven't changed. Uh, like when I was writing The Power Broker, no one knows because it's not in the book, is that Robert Moses was considered one of the great we used to call him ladies' man, of his era and his affairs. He was a noted lover around New York. And his affairs included one with very famous people that would have really brought news to the book, a headline to the book. I left it all out in the whole 1,286 pages. There's only one paragraph I knew on, there was something on, <laughs> on one affair, because you had to put this in to explain why he did something when he ran for governor. I was able to leave it out because it had nothing to do with Robert Moses' work. His idea of an affair was really, how can I say this, 
to have his chauffeur pick up the person of the moment and drive her up to Randall's Island, where his office was under the toll booth. And the chauffeur would wait in the driveway. And in a remarkably short period of time, <laughs> now with Lyndon Johnson, uh, it's sort of known now, and certainly it's been written about in other books, all the different affairs that he had. I really only go into one in the first volume, because you couldn't leave her out. Her name was Alice Glass. Their affair, I think the physical side of it so far as her sister and her friends tell me ended after five or six years. But they were intimates uh, for 25 years because he really valued her political advice. There are times, as those who've read my books know, where he only wanted her advice. He's out in Australia in 1942 and he has to decide whether he's going to run for the House again or run for the Senate. He's only allowed one telephone call. And he can call, in fact, the White House. He can call one of Roosevelt's aides. But the call he makes is to Alice Glass. And we know what he asked her because I found in the Johnson Library her telegram back. The telegram says, everyone else says you should run for the Senate. I think you should run for the House. And he runs for the House. There are other incidents where she was played a crucial role in his career. Uh, I couldn't really write the life of Lyndon Johnson without leaving this. And now in this book, I had a hard time deciding whether to put in Helen Gehagen Douglas because she, in fact, did not have a, a role in Johnson's life. The reason she's in the book is that I wanted to describe Johnson in his first years in the Senate and his last years in the House coming to Capitol Hill, how we did. And what he would do is walk around Capitol Hill hand in hand with this very famous actress. Even though Lady Bird was back home. They, you, know, you bring up a very big problem, uh, a very real problem. Well, for example, think. Kennedy, uh, we know an awful lot about Kennedy's sex life, but we didn't learn it from you, Arthur. Would you have... <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't have... The general impression is that everyone knew about Kennedy's alleged sex life and that the people covered up because either they liked him or because the, uh, the reporters covered up because they liked him or because that was the code of the day. If you read Ben Bradley's memoir, Ben Bradley, who was the cl closest friend uh, that Kennedy had in the press, he was chief of the Newsweek Bureau in, in Washington, and he, Ben Bradley says that he did not know what, the, what, what was going on, and in, in spite of the fact that his one-time sister-in-law was a, who was a lovely woman, Mary Meyer, might have been one of Kennedy's attachments. But this was not known, nor did anyone in the White House feel that this, uh, that there was no diversion. Kennedy was a very hardworking president. He was terribly interested in the issues. He faced a number of crucial decisions, and so on. And there weren't uh, bimbos wandering around the hideout. <laughs> what, uh, whatever Ben knew, and he tells me he knew nothing too, uh, perhaps he didn't, but it is well to remember that the Kennedy's sex life and, and the, the resulting pouring out of journalism and everything else that followed it really came out in 1975 with the church committee hearings on the CIA when in a footnote uh, the 
writers of the report said that the president had a relationship with a person who also had a relationship with a member of organized crime. That was Judith Campbell Exner and Sam Giancana. It was a footnote with no names, no nothing. The Republicans, not, no fools they, said, what is this? And they essentially forced out that information, which led then to wave upon wave of investigation of John Kennedy's personal life. As an American, it is, I, I do tend to agree, though I was just a kid in school, uh, that obviously some people knew. Secret Service people knew, other people knew more about Kennedy's habits uh, than perhaps uh, learned assistants. On the other hand, for 12 years, nobody said anything about a subject which would have made anyone millions upon millions of dollars. They could have popped on the Today Show, uh, the uh, Tonight Show, if they felt like or done whatever. That tells me that the number of people who knew uh, was relatively small and quite closed mouth. And on the point of, uh, of what, what do you write in, in you're, you're doing a serious piece of work, and you have serious intention about the democracy, about governing, about the people who rise to power. While I was doing the Kennedy book, a source uh, talked to me, a person I knew quite well, and uh, trusted and knew to be highly intelligent, uh, told me that he knew that John Kennedy had an illegitimate child. Uh, the mother was a, uh, a world famous woman. The child who was alive, uh, was fairly uh, well known. He's still fairly well known. Uh, and I went about the business of trying to find out whether that was true. Largely had to do with researching trust funds and whatnot, figuring out what someone would do. Uh, thank God I could not prove it. I, since I couldn't prove it, I didn't write it. Because after six years of work and 800 pages, if in fact I had been able to prove that and used it, I could have thrown out the other 799 pages. <laughs> Would and gone back to the Newark News. <laughs> I never had to make that uh, choice, but I would have had to make it on that basis. We don't have a lot of time left, and I know uh, the audience wants to get in uh, some questions. There are microphones on both sides. If you would be so kind as to keep your questions as brief as possible, we'd appreciate that. I, I, I do want to mention while people are getting their thoughts together that uh, this is an odd time for presidential biographers. Uh, they've gone through a bad time. Stephen Ambrose did Eisenhower and Nixon, Doris Kearns Goodwin, LBJ, Lincoln is the, her, her latest one. She had some others. They've been uh, caught making extensive borrowings from other historians. Joseph Ellis was caught lying about his war career. Um, is this something you think that taints everybody? Is this something that was think Bob should answer that. <laughs> well, I'll answer it. I must have given this answer to a hundred reporters. But if there's one thing I've learned in uh, my work, it's that you never really know anything unless you find it out for yourself. And I haven't looked into these allegations against Doris Kearns, and I don't know what the truth is. Okay. There's a question over here. Yes, uh, one of the ways in which uh, public papers and public actions are kept from the public is for reasons of national security. Um, in the Nixon administration, uh, that was how, within the administration, they excused themselves. Uh, that's how Kissinger papers 
uh, were kept secret, Nixon papers. Um, maybe each of you can comment on uh, occasions in which you worry whether that might be used by an al for, as an alibi sometimes uh, by administrations. And then more specifically, um, I recently had occasion to look at the Pentagon Papers decision by the Supreme Court. And actually, the court took a pretty skeptical, uh, skeptical conclusions about um, uh, the proclivities of administrations to hide things about the idea of harming troops in the field. Maybe if anyone knows anything about that uh, decision, cares to reflect about it. Thank you. It should be pointed out, you know, that the idea of executive privilege is a fairly recent one, with, if you're talking about courts, and this is all tied in with this. 1974, the court decided uh, about The term itself was yeah. invented in the 1950s, and Eisenhower much increased. Her Her Herbert Brownell, who was attorney general, and a, a good man, actually, but he his response to Joe McCarthy was to wall off executive documents under the, as I say, the term itself was invented in the, in the 1950s. And national security is an excuse that's been given for a long time as well, following up on yeah. his question. So, but well, some of it is, it's some obviously it is legitimate, isn't it? Yes, some of it's legitimate. There are parts of executive privilege that are legitimate too. The reaction, if information is leaking out of a White House, uh, <coughs> is generally to first have smaller meetings, uh, and second, not to put things on paper so that a president becomes more and more isolated and gets fuzzier and fuzzier information. That's a real problem for, for the chief executive, the commander in, in chief to know. So he has a reason uh, to defend executive privilege. Uh, and certain kinds of secrecy. Uh, in answer directly, and, and it's our job to push the limits to see where that should end. The question about national security, yes, it is done and done. Things are classified for the most bizarre reasons and stay there because someone thinks it might be embarrassing. I always thought the most interesting thing that I found, well, the funniest thing anyway, in the, in the Kennedy Library was that for 25 years, a copy of a book inscription from Brendan Behan to John Kennedy was classified for 25 <laughs> years. And the reason, as far as I could tell it was, was that it was on a copy of Evergreen Review, which was considered something of a dirty book uh, in those days. And someone uh, with black ink wanted to protect uh, the president's name, President Kennedy, from being associated with it. And finally, when we were able to get them to open it and see what was under the tar, it was to my launchman John Kennedy, Brendan Beard. <laughs> For 25 years, that information was too dangerous to be known by the American people. The question over here. Yes. Thank you. Um, I, I'm a book editor. So naturally, I'm here in part as a representative uh, of the publishing and bookselling industries. And I, because I'm an editor, I feel very conscious of being a handmaiden to books like our guests have done and books I've edited myself. And in the last 12 months, I have edited a book which showed that the very last combat fatalities of the Vietnam War were MIAs who were forgotten and left behind at the end of the futile rescue of the Mayaguez crew in 1975. May, may I interrupt for and a second? The book 
Wait, are you, are you promoting a book? Are you talking no, about no. presidential biographies? I'm doing both because this book could not have been written but for the NSC minutes that the author, a Vietnam vet pilot, got in the course of his research. And I know these things are in peril. Recently, another book about an, a, uh, the longest running fugitive in the history of American justice. So what I'm trying to say is the book business is tough these days, as our friends can tell us who write them sometimes. And we need, we're like a public utility. We're also like a business. And this act, Bush's uh, countermanding of a, of, of a voted act, presidential executive order to do that, is so presumptuous. And also, it's a real like insult to editing, book selling, writing. And I take umbrage at that personally <laughs> and professionally. So I just want to remind people, I know it's not a question, Lenny, but it's so important. And we can learn new things that we don't get to know otherwise. I gather you're testifying before Congress tomorrow on this very matter. Yes, but uh, uh, my testimony really is in an ad, it's kind of an adversary relationship, not unlike the law between uh, people like us and, and the government at the moment. And we're not without uh, our weapons and, and, and experience and whatnot to try to drive as much information out as we can. And you get pretty good at it. You learn a lot in in journalism. There's always someone who objects uh, someplace to something. And if you can find out who that person is, they're the ones who may have the stuff in their garage. Uh, I per and, so, and, and so that there is something in your heart, you feel, that is a public service about what we do. We're trying, I, I don't want to be pompous, but we are trying uh, to bring as much information as we can to the democracy and let them uh, make their decisions on it. And we're damn lucky that people let us do it and we can keep doing it. And we're lucky to have you, all three of you. Thank you so much. Thanks to Penn for putting this thing together. Well, I was thinking of that story when you said, Senator, do you remember when? <laughs> he survived. Well, that's all right. I'm going to get this thing. Oh, here it is. You got it.